If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Nehemiah. We're continuing to study the book of Nehemiah. We're looking at verse 15 through 23 of chapter 4, Nehemiah 4, 15 to 23. If you'll follow along as I read uh, aloud, and of course we believe that these words come to us today under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, and therefore they come to us with the same kind of authority as if Jesus were saying these things to us. So let's hear together the word of Christ. Nehemiah continues, Nehemiah 4.15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, half uh, held spears, shields, bows, coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, those who were building the wall, those who carried the burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he was building. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. And we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the trumpet, rally there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work. And half of them held spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon in his right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, in the 18th century, early 18th century, um, there wasn't a lot of talk of the mission of God in, in a lot of the churches, and particularly the nonconformist churches, so non-Roman Catholic, non-Church um, of England churches. Th there was this high view of church purity, um, which is important. Uh, they, they wanted to have good Christian confession. Uh, they wanted to be pure in life. The, the Puritans uh, of this time kind of had this idea of a garden enclosed was, was how they described themselves. We, we want to be a pure people in the world. And again, again, that's part of the Christian life, but it's not the full Christian life. It's not complete Christianity. And so in the 18th century, there was a big shift. There was a big movement. Um, of course, you've probably heard about some of this with the Great Awakening uh, movement that swept across the Atlantic into North America. Some of the missionary work that happened in North America in the 18th century, like that of David Brainerd. Uh, but a lot of this really started to develop in the later 18th century, uh, under pastors like Andrew Fuller and William Carey, um, who, who, when they looked at the New Testament, didn't see a garden enclosed, but a church that was on the move, a, a church that was active, a church that was incredibly missional, driven by the great commandment of Christ, and also, of course, by the great commission of Christ to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And, and they started to lead this incredible movement that, that I would hope and believe still carries on to this day of just an incredibly active um, church 
that, that believes in uh, the spread of the gospel to all people and to all nations, but who also believes in, again, what we call great commandment ministries. We, we started to see this in the late 18th and certainly into the 19th century, ministries from the church that provided orphan care and hospitals and schools, ministries to widows. Now, William Carey, one of these leaders who's, who's certainly a, a hero of mine in the Christian faith, he's called the father of the modern missionary movement, he went to India, and, and these two ideas, the great commandment, great commission, certainly marked his ministry there. He went and did something that everyone around him is the first thing. Think about this. You know, now we have, if somebody were to leave here and go to be a missionary somewhere, that would be a big step, right? You know, the Fishers lived in Southeast Asia for 14 years. And you think, golly, how do you have six kids in Southeast Asia for 14 years? And they'll tell you, it wasn't easy. <laughs> It was hard. But what if it was the late 18th century and you were getting on a boat, like never to return home, only to correspond with anyone through letters that took months to get back and forth, going to a place where really there was no sort of protection, there was no embassy nearby to help you out. I mean, they were just going out there trusting the Lord. And, and everybody thought Kerry was a fool to do this, but he had this famous thing that he said. He said, look, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. And, and that idea has been on my mind as we've been thinking about this book of Nehemiah, because that's really this story. Nehemiah is kind of doing the same thing, doing something that everyone said, there's no way. This is such a, an impossible task. And, and over and over, the character of Nehemiah and really the people around him is let's attempt great things and expect great things. We've been studying this book. And, and one of the things that we've been saying all along is it's important for us to understand the redemptive work of God, how God has been using his people in different ages, right? The time of Nehemiah, the 18th century, and even today, how God has been using his people in all these different ages to bring about his redemptive plan, to bring about restoration, to bring about salvation. And, and, and we are now those people, as we read this redemptive story in Scripture, as we learn what God has been doing, we have to know that, that this same God is still at work through His people, through His children, through His sons and daughters, who are now us. And so we can learn a lot from these things. And particularly this passage has been incredibly helpful for me. And, and there's three things that I just want to look at with you today. First of all, the way of redemptive work. Secondly, the complexity of redemptive work, and then finally, the difficulty of redemptive work. So the way of redemptive work, one of the things that's, that's most compelling to me in this passage is Nehemiah's confidence in the Lord layered in with very real action, very meaningful and clear action. And just in terms of review, Nehemiah was under the Persian rule. The whole world was basically, the whole Middle Eastern world was under Persian rule at this time. Nehemiah had a big job. He was the cupbearer to Artaxerxes, the ruler. 
as we saw in chapter two, is really a part of the household. He was beloved by the family. Yet he has this great burden for Jerusalem. As I've been saying, there's, there's no way to overstate the importance of Jerusalem and what it meant to the people of Israel, what it meant as a symbol of the people of God, of the power of God, of, the, of God's blessing to his people. And so Nehemiah, so burdened by this, goes back, begins to rebuild this city that had been in ruins, that the walls had been torn down. But really, before he even gets started, it's hard. He's oppressed by enemy nations all around him. There's doubt between the people that are trying to follow him. And and now we see in chapter four, this oppression is only increasing. Last week, we saw in verse seven and eight, let me read seven and eight for you. It says, when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the wall in Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were angry. And they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So this is what's happening. There's, we've seen this play out. There is fighting against them. Uh, they're trying to cause confusion. They're trying to infiltrate uh, the people around Nehemiah and they're having some success, but Nehemiah is not dismayed. He springs into action. Look at verse 16. I mean, this is an amazing story. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held spears, shields, bows, coats of mails. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah. We're building on the wall. Continues. This is amazing to me. Those who carried the burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. (laughs) And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. This is incredible. Just the, the dedication and action and effort. They're, they're having to both fight a war, if you will, and build this incredibly complex structure on the other side. On one side, Nehemiah needs them to be a fighting force of soldiers. On the other side, he needs them to be these master builders. It, it goes on. Verse 18, the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. And we are separated on the wall far from one another. And the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rallied to us there. So here's what's happening. They're building the wall around Jerusalem. They're working on the whole wall at the same time. Now, Jerusalem, if you, you can still go there today. In fact, we're taking a trip in the spring. I hope many of you are going to come with us. And, and you can actually do what they were doing. There's a, it's, it's a, old town Jerusalem, old, the old city of Jerusalem is really one square kilometer, right? And I'm not that smart, but one square kilometer means that it's four kilometers around, right? And so that's about the size that they're trying to defend here, four square kilometers, you know, two and a half miles or so, uh, which doesn't seem like a huge area, but that's a pretty big line to hold in a military force. I mean, if you know anything about a military line, a two and a half mile long line is, it's hard to get enough soldiers in any concentrated area. So what he's saying here is, look, you got to spread out all the way around the wall and work. But when you hear the horn blast, run to this area. We're going to need you. We're being attacked in this part of the wall or on that part of the wall. So they have this incredible, sophisticated plan. He arms them. He organizes them. They are working on this wall. There's incredible engineering effort and architectural effort and structural effort. And then Nehemiah says this, our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. 
Our God who loves us, who's called us, who is doing this redeeming work. The same God that, that called us to this place, that called Abraham to this place, that called his people out of Egypt to this place, that led us into the promised land, that defeated these enemies. Our God will fight for us. We can trust him. We can take confidence in him. We can take confidence in his plan. We can take confidence in his redeeming work. But then the very next phrase you read is this. This is fascinating. So we labored at the work. Isn't that interesting? Right? <laughs> Effort, structure, swords, building, plans, horns, architecture, engineering, all this incredible organization, um, all of this effort. But our God will fight for us. So we labored. That's a very interesting passage. You know, when I first read verse 20, it actually reminded me of Exodus 14, 14. Very similar passage. Here, we read, the Lord will fight for you. This is from Moses right before they crossed the Red Sea. You need only to be silent. <laughs> so here in Nehemiah, it's prepare, grab spears, swords. Let's get a plan. Let's labor because the Lord is fighting for us. In Exodus, it is. The Lord is fighting for you. Just be quiet. <laughs> so which is it? <laughs> what, are we, what are we supposed to make of this? And this is, I want you to hear this. This is, one of the reasons that understanding the redemptive story of God is so helpful. You have to understand this. The Bible is not just imperative truth statements. It is imperative truth statements. The Bible's full of imperative truth statements, but it's not just that. The wonderful thing about Scripture is that the truth of God, the truth about the character and the nature of God and how he interacts with his people is worked out in real stories about real people in real situations. And if you know that, you can really know the Lord. And you can really experience the Lord. These narratives are so powerful. God is fighting for his people. And sometimes that means they take up spears. Sometimes that means they get shovels and bricks and build a wall. Sometimes that means they grab a slingshot and go after a big giant. Sometimes they... That means they build a huge boat, even when everyone thinks they're crazy. Sometimes it means they go in and fight their enemies, and some of them die fighting the enemies. Sometimes it means when facing sheer death between a sea and the largest army in the world, as we saw in the time of Moses, they just need to be silent and watch God work. I think this is enormously instructive for us. It's enormously instructive for me. We need to hear this. You know, I think about even our church. Why is Christ's covenant here? Well, on one side, there's been a lot of effort. There's been a lot of, there's been effort, there's effort all the time. I mean, even think about setting this place up. I, I think of some of the folks that really, like, like a guy like Jim Hogue. For those of you who've been around here, a guy like David Shu, like how many, how many hours have those guys put in like carrying chairs and pushing carts and wrapping up speaker wire? It's unbelievable how much effort they just put in just so that we can be together. There's, yeah, there's a lot of effort that has gone into the ministry of this church. 
But a lot of the ministry of our church just happens in these unexplained providential kindnesses of God. Y'all don't even know like how many times that I've put enormous effort over here and the Lord that the, the, the door that the Lord was going to open for our church was over here. And I kind of, there's been a lot of times where I'm like, Lord, what was this all about? Why did you, why did you, why did you have me doing this? I don't know. This is so instructive for us. The Lord will fight for you. Sometimes that means doing really hard things. Sometimes that means just being patient with joy. But, but when you get this, when you can understand that God, in call, that God has called you to engage with his work in real, meaningful, effortless ways, while, all the while, he is fighting for us, you can be so effective for his kingdom. If you get that, you'll be able to do little things and know that the Lord is at work. You'll be able to put a lot of effort over here and then the door opens over here and not be discouraged by that. You'll also be able to do big things for the Lord and not get too puffed up. You know, that's something that's interesting that's, that's being talked about right now. Is there's been so many stories throughout church history and obviously today where God really uses someone. God's gifted someone. God's called someone. Big things are happening. And then that person begins to believe that it's their gift, it's their personality, it's their success. They lose confidence and that God is fighting for them. And, and not only does God quit using that person, this, those people can sometimes destroy, do damage to the work of the Lord. But if you believe that God is fighting for his people, but he also calls in his, his people to actively engage, you won't be overwhelmed with grief when things don't go as you had hoped. And you won't be overwhelmed by pride when things do. This is the way of redemptive work. To engage in what the Lord's done. To obey his calling. To pursue him with effort. All the while believing that it is God who fights for us. Now, now how all that fits together, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know all the little efforts that I've done for the Lord that, that somehow the Lord is going to use in a big way. And I don't know all the things that I thought were really big <laughs> that I kind of hang my Christian hat on that the Lord's like, that wasn't that much. I did that. I don't know how all this fits together, but this is the way of redemptive work. We engage knowing that it is God who fights. But the second point here that we see in the text is the complexity of redemptive work. This is, again, is so incredible. I mentioned this last week, but I keep thinking about just, I'm just kind of identifying with the, the man of Judah that's working on this wall, and he's literally holding a sword and putting the bricks on the wall. I mean, that's, that's a really hard thing to do. Watching his back could be attacked at any moment, waiting for the trumpet to sound, but he's trying to do this incredible wall building. 
And, and it was an amazing wall. I mean, if you think about it, the, the wall that they put up, the, the, the outline of this wall is still the wall. It's, now it's been rebuilt, it's been redone, but, but if you go to Jerusalem today, the, the basic outline and structure is this wall. It's very amazing. On one side, they're called to be a soldier. On one side, they're called to be a master builder. And I actually think if you want to take part in the redemptive work of God, the same kind of complex call is being made of you. One of our values at Christ's covenant is gospel fluency. What we mean by that is <laughs> we, we want you to be real Christians that think like Christians, that are fluent in the gospel. We want you to be more a citizen of the kingdom of Christ than you are a citizen of this world. We, we want the gospel to be your mother tongue. You know, I know a little Spanish, right? But I only know enough Spanish to like order at a restaurant or ask where the bathroom is. I can't have a meaningful conversation with someone in Spanish because I'm not fluent in Spanish. I can't have a meaningful conversation in Spanish without a Spanish translator. And, you know, when, when we first got to Atlanta, you know, Paige and I had all these conversations just about how so many Christians we, we felt like have, have kind of gotten the short end of discipleship. They're, they're too dependent on gospel translators. They're not fluent in the gospel. They're not fluent in, in how the word of God works. The, their way of discipleship is come to church with me or here's a podcast or here's a book. They know a little gospel, but, but not enough to really engage in discipleship. And there's nothing wrong with inviting a friend to church or giving them a book. Those are good things to do. But, but we wanted a church full of people that, that had their own sense of gospel fluency, that, that could actually be disciple makers, that could actually engage in the work of the Lord. And, and I feel that so many Christians, and particularly in our town and maybe in a lot of places, have kind of been discipled by churches that say, look, you just come, bring friends, give, and we'll take care of all the rest when actually the New Testament says the opposite. The New Testament says, no, no, the, the job of pastors, leaders in the church is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for, for the saints, for you to be gospel fluent, for you to be ambassadors for the kingdom of Christ. You know, we started this series, we, we talked about this rhythm of the church of gathering and scattering, right? Right now is the gathering, and, and the, the gathering is more than just this. This is part of our, this is one of our gatherings. I love this gathering. I love that we sing together. I'm so encouraged when I just hear you sing. I'm so encouraged to pray together. I'm so encouraged to take communion together. I'm so encouraged just even a little time after the service when we're just kind of hanging out and we're talking to one another. It's, a, it's awesome. Gosh, we need this gathering. I love my community group. I look forward to it every week. I love getting together with other believers and praying. I love getting dinner with you guys. We need these inward facing relationships. But we're not just called to be a garden enclosed. We're also called to scatter and to be ambassadors for the kingdom of Christ when we do. And, and a few weeks ago, I talked about this scattering in two ways. One, scattering in active ministry 
scattering in missional ways, and, and, and secondly, scattering in ordinary ways, but with gospel intentionality. I ask you this question, scattering in missional ways. Do you have a ministry? Is there any way, and I, I want to ask you again, is there any way that you are serving the kingdom of Christ, that, that you are putting your hand to the plow? Do you have a ministry? Do, do, are you actively engaged in something that the Lord is doing? It's one of the reasons I'm so proud of you right now. I'm so proud that so many of us engage with foster care and with even just simple things like collecting food or with mentoring children in, in, at, at a Boyd Elementary School. Do you have a ministry? Right? Is there any way that you are engaged? I'm so grateful that right now a lot of our young adults are in North Carolina engaged with our students. Do you have a ministry? It's been awesome to see in this effort so many people engaging and as they engage the Lord doing what he does opening their hearts and minds to other ways that he is at work. And we, we had somebody write us a letter and said, hey, I, I think I could teach a class on personal finance. Could that help some people? Could I use that as a ministry to engage with a gift that I have? For this? And we said, yeah, it's, all, it's amazing. Let's do that. There's somebody else that said, hey, I really have a heart for the homeless. And, and this person's kind of started a homeless ministry, an intentional way of serving some of the most marginalized around us. Do you have a ministry? But, but we don't just scatter in missional ways. We also scatter, and this is, I think, so important, in ordinary ways, but with gospel intentionality. We scatter in ordinary ways as ambassadors for Christ with gospel intentionality. And I would just ask you, is this how you scatter? You know, I've been, I've been convicted. I, I've been spending a lot of time at the ball field lately as a dad. All my kids are playing sports. And I'm like, okay. This is a place where the Lord has me to scatter. And it's kind of hard to be a, an ambassador sometimes. You know, I've been coaching a little bit and, you know, it's like <laughs> I'm, I'm coaching football right now and I'm trying to teach these five-year-olds to contain, okay? Just good technique, work the outside angle. And um, I'll just say it's frustrating, you know? You know, <laughs> five-year-olds, they just don't have good technique on the outside. But I've, I've just been convicted. Okay, am I scattering here as a, as a believer? Is, is Christ being seen in me? And that, and that doesn't mean that, you know, Christians should have good technique on the outside. Like we should do what we do with excellence, right? Um, but am I, am I scattering as a believer? Am I, when you go to work, are you scattering as a believer? In your neighborhood, are you scattering as a believer? Are you an ambassador in those places? I was having lunch with a guy one time. And we were talking about his job. He said, yeah, I work for the State Department. He didn't really like his job. He didn't really like the people he worked with. And I said, you know, maybe, you know, there's certainly time to change your job. But I was like, but right now, God has you at the State Department. I was like, how awesome is that? I was like, you're a Christian, which means that the Holy Spirit of God is within your life that God wants to use you at the State Department. That's a very strategic place. I said, what if Jesus came to earth and his ministry was to work for the State Department? What would have happened? And the guy was like, well, I, I don't know. <laughs> I never thought about that. And I said, he would have changed the world. It's like, it didn't matter where Jesus was. When Jesus came, he didn't, it wasn't he was doing anything special. What did Jesus do that was special? He wasn't a king. He wasn't a, 
general. He wasn't a star sports athlete. I mean, he just was a guy just that did normal things with very, very normal people. And God used his gospel intentionality to change everything. And the truth of the matter is God wants to do the same thing with every one of us. When we scatter, we scatter in missional ways and we scatter in, in ordinary ways. But if you scatter with gospel intentionality as a Christian, as somebody that God can use as a light of the gospel in the various places he has, there is so much hope for what God can do in our city and in our world. And I say all of this to say, living this way though, living out gospel ministry, living with gospel's intentionality, I just want you to hear this, is complex. It's not easy. It's easy to hear. Right now, I'm sure you're hearing this and you're saying like, yeah, like, okay, I'll go be a light. But this is hard. There is a complexity about this. I actually think this is why this story is so helpful. It will feel like at some times, as you scatter with gospel intentionality, as you engage with ministry, that in one hand you have a sword and in one hand you have a brick. It'll feel like, okay, in one, on one side, my faith is always being attacked. I don't know quite what it looks to be a Christian in this environment. I'm being tempted in these ways. And on the other side, I'm, I know I'm called to engage here. I know I'm called to, to take the kingdom of God forward, but I don't exactly know what that means. There is a complexity to this. And a complexity that we have to be ready for. And, and I just want to say, this is why this is so important. This is why your community group is so important. This is why we put so much effort into daily Bible reading plans and things like our daily rhythm. This is why we have Covenant Institute. Like right now, there's a Covenant Institute course on faith and work. This is why Christian discipleship is so important because being an ambassador, being what God has called you to be is, is a complex calling. And I think that we, because we have failed at this, and because I believe that the church, the church at large has, has not taken this role of disciple-making seriously, we haven't been willing to do this, and we haven't done this. You know, I was talking with a friend this week. When I was a, a child, I knew about some Christian morality, right? I knew, like, this was right and this was wrong, but I wasn't discipled well enough to really know why these things were right, to, to really defend the biblical worldview on so many of these things. No, I was a child. Discipleship takes time. I knew that there was injustice in the world, but I, I didn't really know what the Bible said about justice. I, I knew that there were people out there that didn't believe in God, but I didn't really know how to engage with him. And I just want to say, if you're finding yourself, you're like, gosh, I mean, yes, I realize these things are complex. That's okay. You're in a good place. Just keep, keep engaging. Keep stepping in. Step into everything that you can so you can grow in gospel fluency. When Christians don't think like Christians, the gospel is very open to attack and distortion. When Christians don't think like Christians, the gospel is so open to attack and to distortion. And that, that's really our role, to stir one another, to correct one another, to teach one another, to exhort one another. How does the church get distorted? Really, it's this. Christians don't know their Bibles. You know, about a year ago, Tim Keller wrote this really helpful critique of secular justice. And I was reminded of this article, and I just read this little passage 
just this week, and I was like, this is such a helpful little passage. This is just one slice of, of what I'm talking about. But he says, biblical justice, of biblical justice, he says, in the Bible, Christians have an ancient, rich, strong, comprehensive, complex, and detractive understanding of justice. Biblical justice differs in significant ways from all of the secular alternatives without ignoring the concerns of any of them. Yet Christians know very little about biblical justice, despite its prominence in the scriptures. This ignorance is having two effects. First, large swaths of the church still do not see doing justice as part of their calling as individual believers. And second, many younger Christians, recognizing this failure of the church and wanting to rectify things, are taking up one or another of the secular approaches to justice, which introduces distortions into their practices and lives. And again, this is why we're so serious about daily Bible reading plans and catechisms for our children and the Covenant Institute. We want you to be gospel fluent. We, we want you to think like a Christian as your mother tongue. We want you to think more like Christ does and less like the world does. But finally, we see in this text of the difficulty of redemptive work. You know, there's so much difficulty in, in what these people were doing. And if they weren't, I want you to hear this. If the people around Nehemiah's day in their part of this redemptive story, if they weren't willing to take their work seriously, if they weren't willing to be focused on what God had called them to do, then they would have never been effective. And the same is true of you. If, if you're not really willing to go in for this, you're, you're, never, you're never really gonna be used. Look at verse 22. Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each had his weapon at his right hand. I just want to say all of this is hard. <laughs> I mean, how hard is this? And, and, and we are called to hard things. We live in a world of distraction. We live in a world of comfort. And here's the deal. It is easy to just get caught in the river and just to kind of do enough to float along in your Christian life and never really have any sort of effectiveness for the things of the Lord. It's easy to pursue comfort. It's easy to just go the way of the world. Prayer is hard. Consistent, meaningful prayer is hard. Reading your Bible day after day, knowing the word of God, thinking like a Christian is hard. Continuing in ministry, going to the store every once in a while and buying a few little things here and there, that's not that hard. But continuing in ministry, bearing with people, even when they let you down, that's really hard. And you will, you will opt for an easy Christianity unless you hold on to what lasts. Unless you really believe that God is at work, you know, a few things. What, what does last? I'll just start with these three, faith, hope, and love, right? Unless you have faith, unless you really believe that our little effort is working. You know, you know the person that goes, it's, it's hard to go every week to Boyd Elementary School and sit down and, and look at sight words. But maybe, just maybe, You'll be the person that gives that child confidence to learn how to read, a child to learn how to read, and the whole trajectory of generations that follow will be changed. But here's the deal. 
you'll probably, that child will probably not remember the impact that you had on their life. But here's the deal, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter because God knows. But that requires faith. Unless you really believe that God is fighting, that he's using our little efforts, you'll never really last. You'll never be able to attempt great things for God and expect great things from God unless you have faith. You also need hope. You know what leads Christians, the Christians that really do great things for the Lord, you know, it leads them to, they, they have hope. They believe that one day they'll be with the Lord. We don't think of this enough. You know, Jonathan Edwards, one time, I've said this before, said that Christians should think about heaven 30 minutes a day. You should, you should. You should think about the day that you will be with the Lord. I don't do this. I should do this too. But, but we should think about the day that we'll be with the Lord 30 minutes a day. It's a great discipline. How would that change your life if you actually had this kind of hope to know that all of our little light and momentary struggles would be achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all? 30 minutes a day. If you don't have a hope to know that, to know that, that our effort for the Lord counts for something, you'll never really be great in this redemptive story. And finally, love. Do you love the Lord? Do you really love God? Do you really want to serve him? But if these things are true of you, faith, hope, love, you will endure. And here's, the, here's why. This is exactly what Jesus had. Why did Jesus endure? Why did Jesus take on the most complex, the most difficult, the most the highest, most ridiculous task that anybody has ever taken on, to take on the sin of all humanity and to face the judgment of God, to overcome sin and death. How did Jesus endure in all of that? He endured because he trusted his father. He had faith. He endured because he had hope for the joy that was set before him. He, he, he knew that, that one day God would work all of this out for something glorious. And he endured because he had love. He endured because he loved, he loved his father and he loved us. And look, if you know that, if, 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 if Jesus is really your Lord, if he, if he endured with faith, hope, and in love in this kind of way, then, then you can too. You can attempt great things for God. You can expect great things from God. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray now. I pray for myself right now, Lord, that I would not be caught in temporary things. I pray, Father, you would give me the kind of faith to see where and how you're working. I pray, Father, that you would give me hope to know that my true life and my true identity is with you and in your kingdom. I pray, Father, you would give me love, that I would see how much you love me and I would respond by loving you and by loving the things that you love and the people that you love. And of course, I don't just pray this for me, I pray this for all of us. Please do this in our lives, Lord. Give us faith. Father, help us to see how you're working, Lord. Give us hope. Help us to see that the little 80, 85, whatever it is, years that you give us here are very small and not even worth comparing 
to the true life that you have set out for your sons and for your daughters. And Father, give us love. Lord, give this church love. Please, Lord, keep us away from self-centered arrogance and pride. Please keep us away from self-righteousness, self-centeredness. Please guard us from these things by the gospel and give us a heart like the heart of our Lord Jesus. Father, lead us to love you and lead us to love the things that you love and most of all the people that you love. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.